You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, we've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk with Chris Robinson from Robinson Ag Marketing about what's moving in these commodity markets here as we head into the weekend. And in segment two, we're going to check in with Dan Halstrom, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. They've just released their May export results, and I haven't even seen the numbers. Dan will premiere them here on AOA for us. And then in segment three, Dr. Jim Mintert, the director of the Center for Commercial Ag at Purdue, will be joining us. Again, recently released data. This time, the Purdue Ag Economy Barometer was out and small improvement for producer sentiment. We'll talk to Jim about what all that will mean later on in the program. Before we jump into that, however, let's take a look at what is moving here in these commodity markets. A little red on the screen, Chris Robinson, Robinson Ag Marketing joins now. Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Hey, great to be here. Thank you, sir. As I see this rain on the screen, Chris, I've got to imagine the forecasts are calling for moisture here over this weekend. Is that what's going on? Uh, also, yeah. It's also, it's, we've had pretty light volume, really. This is the July 4th week. Um, uh, the, the volume's been disappointing. Um, and we'll see if you know, it comes back next week. Hopefully, we get back to some normal trade next week. But I think the market's still kind of digesting that last acres, that acres change really caught a lot of people off guard. You, know, you had the big run up in soybeans, and we lost four million acres of, of uh, uh, soybeans. Uh, you know, con- considering, and then we had a you know a gain of two million acres of corn. So the market's still digesting that. Now next Wednesday we got another USDA water production update. We'll see if they throw any surprises at us. But that was a pretty shocking uh, report, and that's why you had such a big s- swing between new crop beans and new crop corn. Chris, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad you brought up next week's uh, WASDE, that World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimate. I I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you do. Is there anything on this next July WASDE that gets changed with the acreage number from last week? Do we update uh, all of the balance sheet for USDA this month on that WASDE? We'll see. It's really a production estimate, guesstimate. I guess that's what you want to call it. Now, in the past, you know, this, this number has has provided movement. Mostly what we're trading right now, obviously, is the fact that corn is in pollination. So, and we've already had a tremendous whipsaw. We saw the whipsaw that we have not seen uh, percentage-wise since 2009. You know, we rallied $1.34, and then we dropped $1.45. Uh, you know, we haven't had that type of repricing event in quite a long time. So it's been, you know, 14, 15 years. So that, I think, is where the market's at. I think it's a positive that these corn is still above $5 here right now. So, you know, a lot of people were very concerned that, you know, we're those sub 450, uh, sub, you know, something like that. So um, I think that the line is drawn in the sand for these corn, 485, 480. That's going to be a big level moving ahead uh, to see if that holds. So um, we're in key time now for pollination. And you're right. You know, the uh, weather market is going to continue, I think, for the next two weeks. Really, we've got a lot of volatility until the end of uh, uh, this pollination. So we'll see. And my guess is that every time we change the weather forecast, every 12 hours, you'll see that these corn 
um, go up and down with that weather forecast. Absolutely. Futures markets are weather derivatives from time to time. That is for sure. Chris, you mentioned the the really stunning drop in bean acreage from the USDA last week. We've got November beans holding tight around 1350 with the tighter acreage and the price at 1350. What yield do you think the trade is estimating at this point in the game for soybeans? <laughs> well, whatever it is, it's not enough, right? We're in that, that part now. That carryout really surprised people. The carryout was, you know, almost dropped by half. We're in a tight bean market. And, um, the only market that the Chinese have really been steadily buying, ironically, or not surprisingly, has been beans. They've been there. They're not going gangbusters, but I think they recognize it as well. We have a tight bean situation, and I don't think that's going to go away uh, anytime soon. Uh, that's, that is going to be the driver. And the question is, can beans lift the rest of the market? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Can beans hold up corn? Uh, but that, you know, those numbers are accurate. That was a big surprise, and uh, we'll have to see. But the, for, for all intents and purposes, we've got tight supplies, and that is the only reason. Now, we, were at, we had a $2.60 rally. We're still $2 above that, that uh, May low, that May 31st low at 11.30. So, you know, $2 worth of revenue. I don't care if you're growing, you know, 1,000 bushels or, you know, a million bushels. That 2 bucks is definitely something that you want to uh, take advantage of. You don't want to let it go by the wayside. Yeah, you want to stick at least a portion of that money in your pocket right now while the market's offering it, Chris. Certainly seems like it. You mentioned the Chinese continuing to purchase U.S. soybeans. I know on Twitter here yesterday or recently, you and Karen Braun from Reuters were going back and forth on the climb in Chinese corn prices. Is there the potential yeah. we could see them step back in as a buyer of U.S. corn this year? Well, I, I hope so. From your lips to God's ears, uh, you know, they, they've got problems with their production. Now, is it big enough for them to hold their nose and come buy our corn? Um, I think they've been really depending on what's coming out of South America. At the end of the day, you know, uh, people have got to eat. So that is, if they really do have a problem with their corn, and their, their corn prices, their internal grain prices are high. So it's like everything else. If it gets bad enough, they may say, you know what, this, we've got, we need more corn. And the good news is we've got plenty to give to them. So hopefully we get together and, you know, hopefully that, that continues to move forward. The other driver has been, you know, everybody's been talking about what's going on with crude oil, what's going on with crude oil. Their economy has been slowing down or it's not rebounding after COVID as high as people have thought. To, to the other thing I would watch with, with corn demand, ironically, would be what's going on with crude oil. Crude oil above 70 bucks, 75 bucks, that helps demand for uh, our ethanol moving forward because higher crude, higher crude prices make that uh, you know, ethanol mass problem work. And down the, road, down the road as well, that's something that the Chinese are looking at as well. Um, you know, they, they, if they need the corn, they certainly know where to come get it. They do indeed. And that crude oil price right now, just shy of 73 bucks. We're pretty close to that bubble there. Chris, you were talking about the, the Chinese economy. We had some jobs data here domestically from the U.S. this morning. Put that in the context of the livestock market. Do we still have enough economic strength to keep buyers out there buying this high-priced beef? Boy, you know, it's been a big surprise for the last 15 months because we've been promised time and time again or warned time and time again that, you know, with what interest rates have done that we should be in a recession. It hasn't happened. Thank goodness. Now, today we got the first miss in unemployment numbers. They were expecting 260 new jobs. I think we got 209. So it was a bit of a miss. 
and this, this compares as well. Yesterday, ADP, the, the paycheck company, they had a huge number of what we thought we were going to get much more, uh, much higher employment. What does that matter? Well, if we keep having a really good, a really tight labor market, the Fed will continue to keep rates higher. So long story short, I, I think that um, the, for now, the fact that you, know, you and I are looking right now, uh, live cattle is higher. Feeder cattle look like they want to go fill that gap. We had a nasty gap yesterday. So that's a good sign that the demand is still there. Demand is still there. Consumers are still buying. We'll see if they can maintain it. Folks, we've been talking with Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing. And Chris, as always, thanks for joining us here on AOA. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Folks, stay tuned. We'll be talking with Dan Halstrom, the president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Why do you listen? I just want to stay informed while I'm on the go. News on the radio, it's nice because it's just a quick snippet and I don't have to go searching for it or grab a paper. I listen to radio because anywhere that I'm going, I'm listening to music or I'm listening to a talk show or I'm just trying to stay up on current events. I always turn into the radio to see if I need to take shelter, where it's hitting, to see what I need to be preparing for. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. Non-attorney pays spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. 
They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and now we're going to turn our focus to the world at large and just how much U.S. meat are they consuming. Joining us now is Dan Halstrom. He serves as president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure, Mike. Let's talk about some May meat export results. Dan, I understand you've got the data really fresh off the presses. Is that right? Yeah, it just came out uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, the, the good news here is that, uh, you know, on the, the, the momentum on pork continues to be record-breaking. We have the highest exports in May in two years. Uh, beef exports are still down a bit, from, but let, keep in mind, last year was a record by far. So in the whole scheme of things, the beef numbers uh, are pretty positive as well. So we're, we're pretty happy with uh, what we're seeing through the May data. Well, that is good to hear. Dan, I'd like to talk first about the beef market. Uh, We just had that conversation with Chris Robinson from Robinson Ag Marketing here in segment one, looking at the the slowdown truly in in global beef buying. Where are we seeing it hit the hardest? Well, I think think Asia uh, in general. And, uh, you know, Japan uh, and Korea. Korea is still our largest market. Uh, albeit down a bit from a year ago, and Japan's down a, a bit more than that. Uh, and I think uh, this is a combination of factors. Number one, the, the price levels and the, and the numbers were just so huge from a year ago that uh, even though they're down, they're still in the top two or three years of exports. Uh, the other thing that's really come about slower in Asia than what we had forecasted was the rebound of food service. Uh, food service continues to struggle. Uh, I think... Um, you know, demand in some of the, the concepts is good and rebounding while others are slower. White tablecloth, for example, has is, is been slow to rebound. But the other thing people have to remember is the number of units, restaurant units that were there pre-COVID, uh, you know, depending on the segment, uh, it could be 60 or 70 percent of the number of units that we had pre-COVID. So you have some generic disappearance that hasn't rebounded yet. So uh, that being said, uh, we still see a, a potential tailwind in demand at food service. It's just going to be pushed out, you know, maybe later this year, maybe early next year. But uh, food service is definitely one of the things that's slowing us down in Asia. It'd be nice to see those economies come back, get those restaurants reopened, perhaps some new storefronts reappear as those economies rebound. Dan, I want to turn the focus to something a little brighter you touched on there at the open, which is the ongoing strength in pork exports. I mean, this has kind of caught me by surprise as 2023 has has worn on. Fill us in. What did the export total look like for pork last year and what's hot for the pork uh, pork industry right now? Well, um, your first question is, you know, in May, in May we were up 16%, 261,000 tons. Uh, that's the highest in two years. Um, 
and year-to-date we're up 14%. So the answer to your second question is what's hot? Uh, everything, <laughs> basically. Uh, but there is one country that stands out, and we've been talking about it for quite a while, is Mexico. Mexico is on a real roll, and uh, not only on pork, but on beef. It's one of the bright spots on beef as well. So. On the pork side, we're, we're already on a huge uh, record-shattering pace. Uh, through May, we're up 21%, up 13% for the year on pork. Uh, that We feel like that pace will continue. Uh, beef side is up 9% in May, also up 13% year-to-date. That's maybe a bit of a surprise in the whole scheme of things, but, uh, but very welcome. And the other thing uh, is on the variety meats, both Pork and beef are seeing dramatic growth on the varieties, especially on pork. And uh, while we're flattish on the beef side, it's still uh, it's still a big number because we had a record a year ago. So uh, really, Mexico is one of the bright spots that really, uh, and lamb as well, it's the largest market for lamb. So uh, we're quite happy with the success uh, in Mexico. Dan, as I think back to the past several months when we've had you on to talk through these figures, Mexico, Central, and South America, they have consistently been strong demand areas for meat export growth. And I'm curious, how is USMEF capitalizing on this? Are you able to get buyers in that region all come together? Oh, without a doubt. Um, the um, uh, th This is always a focus of MEF, bringing buyers and sellers together. And you're exactly right. Uh you know, in the case of Central and South America, it wasn't that long ago that we were really talking about them in a sense of a potential growth market or growth regions. Well, we're well beyond that now. It, they are established regions. And, uh, in fact, we have one of our largest events of the year coming up next week in Colombia. <clears throat> and it's the USMEF Latin American Product Showcase. And it's being held in Cartagena, Colombia. And what this does is it brings buyers from 21 different countries in the Central and South American and Caribbean regions together in one hotel for two days. <clears throat> it's 200, buyer, two, 200 plus buyers along with our exporter members. We have a total of 450 people getting together for two days next week. Uh, in fact, we have a whole entire hotel <laughs> committed to this event. Uh, and this is really an opportunity to tell our story uh, it's about relationship building, education, and most importantly, developing commercial sales. This is the 12th year that we've done it, so we have a pretty good historical uh, record of the results, and a lot of new business comes out of this two day, these two days of meetings that we hold. So to answer your question, that's one way that we uh, really work to develop some of these emerging regions. You know, Dan, while we're thinking about South America, I understand earlier this month, the USMEF puts out audio reports, updates on the issues impacting the industry around the world. And you touched on some of the things that uh, USMEF has done in the country of Chile to boost uh, pork consumption. Can you run through a little bit what all uh, what all you've been focusing on in that country? Well, once again, <clears throat> it's about going in and telling about telling our story and educating. It's going in and talking about excuse me, it's about talking about what's available, how to merchandise it, what are the options, and also talking about the safety and the quality aspects of U.S. beef and pork, for that matter. Uh, both are very prominent at retail in Chile. And we recently hired a, uh, uh, a team member down there. Uh, last year we hired him a chef. Um, so we have a, 
a culinary chef on staff based in Santiago, Chile, that's doing a lot of the work hands-on with a lot of these uh, retailers and distributors in Chile. So really, I wish there was a magic bullet, but it's really about relationship building and telling our story. And, uh, and we're really seeing the results uh, in a place like uh, Colombia that appreciates quality and will also pay for quality. That is always nice when they're willing to write the check for high quality U.S. protein. Dan, one country that is buying a lot of U.S. pork here over the past year, and it's it's not necessarily because they want to, it's because their industry suffering, is that Dominican Republic, the island out there, or the island of uh, Hispaniola in the Caribbean. Have those pork sales to the DR continued as they're battling African swine fever? Yes, they, they definitely have. Um, you know, year to date this year, we're up about 40% uh, on the pork side. Um, and, and consumption uh, is, has rebounded down there, but they're just more, much more reliant on imported products than they were before. Yeah, to your point, we never wish hardship on any uh, customer in, in the domestic industry in that country. But, uh, yeah, we have seen a bit of a tailwind. But keep in, keep in mind that that market was growing prior to ASF as well. So, uh, you know, there's some uh, some generic growth that was there separate from their issues in the domestic, domestic uh, industry. Oh, that's a really good point. Dan, I'm glad you brought that up. And while we've got you on the horn here, you were talking about the challenges in food service on the beef side over in Asia. As I take a look at the May results for pork exports over into some Asian countries, particularly China and Hong Kong, it appears like they are stepping back in to continue purchasing U.S. pork. Uh, they are. Um, yeah, China is an interesting one. I think a lot of that growth is more focused on the variety meat side, so more the wholesale traditional markets, uh, not so much on the muscle cuts, uh, which would be, you know, more into retail and, uh, and food service. Uh, but outside of that, um, I think, uh, you know, in Japan, most definitely we're seeing some progress being made at both uh, retail and food service. Uh, Korea still it had actually a very good month on pork, and I think we're starting to see some life there as well uh, that we hadn't seen earlier in the year. So those are all uh, uh, very good points, and, and we're watching it very closely, but it's welcome news to get some rebound on the pork side there. It is indeed, folks. The, the global meat export market is one to watch as we get through this era of very high cost, but very, very strong consumer demand. Of course, U.S. Meat Export Federation tracks these details monthly. Dan, if we've got listeners who want to dive deeper into the data, where should they go to get that information? Yeah, go to our website, www.usmef.org, or give any of us a call at our headquarters in Denver. We'd be happy to walk people through it. Fantastic exports experts on this topic. Dan Halstrom, USMEF President and CEO, thanks for joining us today on AOA. Thanks so much. And folks, stick around. We'll dig into that recently released Ag Economy Barometer from Purdue when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and will be reflecting on the year and what's ahead, along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer Camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, what's going on in the grain and livestock trade as we work through our Friday session? We see mostly lower in the grains, although we have pulled ourselves off of the overnight session lows here. Corn is uh, just a couple of cents lower. Soybeans are 8 to 11 lower. The wheat trade, Chicago, is now unchanged to down about four. Kansas City wheat was sharply lower overnight. That's now down just a couple of cents here as we work through our trade and spring wheat as well trading uh, mixed right around the unchanged mark we did get an export sale announced on friday morning of corn to mexico 180,000 metric tons and of that we see 45,000 is for the current marketing year and the balance is for the 23-24 marketing year now we see that a front moving uh, through the midwest has produced some moisture but amounts have largely been disappointing Temperatures expected to stay mild, though, with the potential for more showers next week. The latest release of the U.S. Drought Monitor indicated that 67% of the corn crop remains in drought conditions, down 3% from the prior week. With more rain in the forecast for the Corn Belt, it could be expected to fall further. New crop export sales did pick up here in the weekend of June 29th as we got 16.5 and 21.8 million bushels of corded soybean export sales, respectively. China and Unknown accounted for almost almost two-thirds of that soybean weekly total. USDA is going to revise their supply and demand estimates next Wednesday. Yield change is unlikely at this point, even with increasing dryness and lower crop ratings, but those June 30th acreage changes could skew production just a little bit. Over in livestock, a solid day developing in a cattle trade as we wait for more cash cattle activity this week, while the hog market is trading moderately lower. Crude oil is up about 1%. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma not at birth with macular degeneration you lose your central vision you have a blind spot right in the center of your face so i can't actually see your face so even that little circle in which i could see became a big blur i was 65 when i first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more.
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Just like every other industry here around the world, it seems over the past three years, the ag industry has seen its margins and its profit expectations go up and come back down and go up and come back down. And we have seen producers struggle to maintain really just kind of a sense of what's happening here in the world of agriculture. And a lot of those things are tracked each month by the Purdue Ag Economy Barometer. They release it each month. It's an index of farmers' expectations. And joining us now to break down the most recent survey is Dr. Jim Mintert. He serves as the director for the Center for Commercial Ag at Purdue University. And Dr. Mintert, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, the headline from this most recent ag economy barometer is that farmer sentiment is improving. Jim, fill us in. How big was the jump over this past month? Well, it was a pretty big jump. Uh, the barometer index, which is kind of an overall measure of uh, farmer sentiment, rose 17 points compared to the April reading. And, uh, you know, if you look at it, that was 24 points higher than a year earlier. Um, so it was a nice improvement. But I think you have to keep in mind when we did the survey, we were doing the survey in the middle of June. And of course, that was when we were still experiencing the rally in commodity prices, especially corn and soybeans. Uh, the rally continued a little bit past our survey, but then of course the sharp break in commodity prices took place after that. So I think the survey reflected the improvement in sentiment associated with that rise in commodity prices, not just corn and soybeans, but also I think beef producers, about 19% of the people in our survey are beef producers. So. Uh, that positivity was kind of widespread at that point in time. And we're getting ready to do the, the July survey now. So uh, I think it could turn out a little different this month. Yeah, it could, at least for those uh, corn and soybean producers are seeing a bit of a swing. Jim, while we're thinking about the survey here, can you tell our audience what's the makeup? How does this survey work? So every month we survey 400 farmers across the nation, and they are not the same people every month. Um, we have a big database of, of farmers to pull from. And so what we do to maintain continuity across months, because we're not talking to the same people, is we hold the enterprise mix constant. And that's based on the value of farm production expressed by the USDA's Census of Agriculture. So the survey has a lot of uh, corn and soybean producers in it just because of the high value of farm production. Uh, just over half of the survey respondents every month have at least a, a corn and soybean operation. I think 19% beef and so on down the line. So the people we talk to are uh, corn, soybean, uh, crop producers, wheat producers, cotton producers. On the crop side, on the livestock side, we talk to beef, pork, and dairy producers. All right, Jim. And then, of course, you compile both their thoughts on how things look currently in the current conditions index. And then you ask about their future expectations. What are we seeing? What, what are producers thinking about expectations currently? Are they, are they feeling as positive as they are longer term? Yeah, so it was really interesting this month. All of the improvement that we saw in the overall measure, the ag economy barometer, was attributable to people becoming more optimistic about the future. Um, the index of current conditions was unchanged in from May to June, but the index of future expectations actually rose 25 points. So it was really interesting. People were looking very far ahead, and it wasn't just about their own farming operation. People told us that they were more optimistic about the U.S. ag economy 
over the next five years than they had been previously. So it was kind of an interesting swing and really focused on the future, not so much on the current situation. Jim, do you think that swing in future expectations was again influenced by the moves in the commodity market there for the month of June? We were looking out for some pretty good prices down the line for a while there in June. Yeah, I think, I think commodity prices did influence it. Although if you look at the life of the survey, and we started doing this survey back in the fall of 2015, it's become clear that more than commodity prices influence people's uh, uh, perspectives. Commodity prices matter, profitability matters, but we see sentiment swings related to other factors. So I think part of it was commodity prices, but there was something else going on there with respect to optimism about uh, maybe crop yields from a long-term perspective, productivity, uh, opportunities, et cetera. So I think commodity prices were key, but I think it was probably just a little bit more than that. But again, it'll be interesting to see what people tell us in this month's survey as we've seen this weakness, especially in corn, yeah, well, especially in corn prices. Absolutely, Jim. And as I think longer term about the industry, I mean, one of the things I hear from growers when I'm out on the grounds is that they're they're worried about the cost of capital climbing too much. Is that a hindrance that's showing up in the survey at all anywhere? Is is our interest rates starting to to drag on sentiment much? It, it is starting to show up. So one of the things we do is we compute a farm capital investment index. And that's based on a question that says, is now a good time or a bad time to make large investments in your farming operation? And the follow-up question to that is, if you tell us it's a bad time, we ask, why do you think it's a bad time? And we started asking that question last summer. And you can kind of trace the impact of interest rates looking at the responses to that question. Last July, the first time we asked that question, only 14% of the people in the survey said that thought it was a bad time to make investments, said it was because of uh, rising interest rates. The last several surveys, going back really the last four months, we've had between 32 and 35% of the people in the survey tell us it's rising interest rates. It's causing them to say it's a bad time to make large investments. So we're starting to see that impact that it's really starting to swing. The other key factor with respect to people telling us it's a bad time to make investments is because of the increase in prices that's taken place for farm machinery and new construction. So that combination of inflation and then higher interest rates may be working to slow down some some growers, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, about 70 to 75 percent of the people in the survey have been telling us it's a bad time to make large investments. And yet on the flip side, we know the farm machinery sales continue to be very strong. And so what we're seeing, I think, is a kind of a split between who's eligible and who's able to make these large investments uh, versus some people who perhaps perhaps in a much stronger financial position and better able to make those investments. So we're getting some differences in perspective there. All right. And that, I think, tees up my next question very, very well, because again, Jim, it's one of those differences in perspective. We've got inflation, we've got interest rates, and yet the short-term farmland value expectations on this most recent month skyrocketed, didn't it? It did. And probably the biggest surprise in the survey this month was how much that short-term farmland value expectation index rose. That index is based on a question that says, what do you think is going to happen to farmland values in the next 12 months? And that index jumped uh, 16 points. It went from 110 to 126. And to keep in mind how to interpret that, anytime the value is above 100, that means more people in the survey are optimistic about farmland values uh, rather than negative about it. So more people consistently have been optimistic about farmland values, but that was a significant jump. That takes that index up to, I think, what, 10 points below where it was this time last year and about 22 points below where it was two years ago. The interesting thing was until this month, if you looked at a chart of that index over the last couple of years, 
you can see that kind of a downtrend, in other words, a weakening in expectations for stronger farmland values. So this month was really kind of a reversal. It'll be interesting to see if we maintain that here in July or if that was just a one month blip. It will be interesting. Watch that uh, that same confidence passed its way onto the long-term farmland values index. And yeah, the, the impact of inflation and, and interest will be interesting on that. Jim, part of the survey, I know you also get the chance to just ask questions, kind of ad hoc questioning for the survey. Was there anything too surprising in the farmers' responses to you? Mike, you cut out there. I didn't actually hear your question. Could you repeat that? Sorry about that, Jim. I was going to ask about the ad hoc questions you ask for the folks, particularly the questions about the farm bill. Did you get any interesting responses from producers as they were looking at policy in the year ahead? Well, it, it's been kind of interesting. I think maybe probably the most interesting thing is we've been asking people if they think the PLC reference prices for corn or soybeans are going to increase. And we've got a significant percentage of people uh, in ballpark numbers, about half of the people in the survey think that we're going to see an increase in those PLC reference prices for corn and soybeans uh, in a new farm bill. And you know, when you talk to the to the people that are looking at it from a budget standpoint, that's going to be a tough poll in Congress. So there's a little bit of a, a surprise there with respect to what people seem to be expecting in a new farm bill versus what people in Washington are telling us is likely. All right. There's always the possibility that politics can upend our expectations. That's certainly no shock in the ag industry. Dr. Mentor, of course, the Center for Commercial Ag at Purdue is involved in a lot of different things. And this time of year is a good time to get together, do, do tours of farms. Do you guys have anything like that coming up in the near term? We do. So every summer, the Center for Commercial Agriculture and Purdue Extension host a Purdue Farm Management Tour going all the way back to the 1930s. This year, we're going to be holding that tour next Tuesday, July 11th in southern Indiana in Washington and Jackson counties. So if any of your listeners are in Indiana, uh, northern Kentucky, southern Illinois, uh, southern Ohio, <clears throat> we'd encourage you to think about coming to the tour. Uh, all the information on that tour is available on our website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So check in out and uh, hope to see you on the tour on Tuesday. Well, so Jim, I, I've got to ask you to, to define some things here. I've heard of crop tours before. I've heard of field tours before. What's a farm management tour? Yeah, so that's a good question. So it, this is really about the management of the farms. We start off with a, an interview that takes about 45 minutes where we talk about how the farm is organized, what they're producing, what innovative technologies they've adopted, what management strategies they're using. And one of the things we really try to focus on is farms that are bringing back the next generation, how they've been able to do that. And the two farms we have on next week, uh, the Rollins and the Hackmans, have both been able to do that by adopting and integrating new enterprises into their farm. In one case, it's a layer operation. In the other case, it's a produce operation. Uh, to bring back the new, the next generation. And that's always a, a big question people have is how can I bring back uh, that young person who's just finished college, for example, and wants to join our farming operation? How can we expand enough to make it possible for them to farm with us on a full-time basis? And these two farms have done that successfully. So that'll be a big part of what we talk about next week. That will be very interesting, folks. If that's a challenge that your operation might be grappling with, check it out. Jim, tell us one more time, what's the website to learn about that farm management tour? Great. So Purdue.edu and then slash commercial ag or in your search engine, just type in Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And we should pop up number one. Fantastic, folks. And then bookmark that Center for Commercial Agriculture because they are a great source of information in the world of agriculture. We've been talking with Dr. Jim Minter, the director of the Center for Commercial Ag at Purdue. And Jim, thanks for joining us today. 
Thanks for the opportunity, Mike. Folks, stick around. We're going to talk with uh, Michael Steenhook, the Soy Transportation Coalition, about some uh, delays pending on the Panama Canal. Leave it here for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference. Bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Brian Cool, CEO of Progressive Agriculture Foundation, about how to keep kids safe on the farm. Brian, if you would, tell us what makes the Progressive Agriculture Foundation's approach towards on-farm safety unique. So for over 30 years, we have been providing safety education and training to youth through our Progressive Agriculture Safety Day program. It's a program that's available to any community throughout North America. And this year alone, we will have over 400 of these Progressive Agriculture Safety Days being held for youth ages 4 to 13. The unique piece about it is twofold. Number one, it's very specific and customizable to the community, to the location. So we don't have any specific curriculum, any specific topics that we require any um, safety day to perform or teach to the children. We leave that up to the community leaders. In the Midwest, we may be more focused on teaching livestock safety, grain safety, ATV and UTV safety, one of our most popular topics in the last couple of years. But if you go into the Southern part of the United States, They may be more focused on water safety, sun safety, some of those topics that are more specific to their region, as well as important to their community. Brian, what resources are out there to help kids stay safe? So first and foremost, as I mentioned, the Progressive Agriculture Safety Day is a great resource you can bring to your community. It's available to anyone to bring in. The easiest way to find out more information about that program, as well as to uh, sign up, get uh, your name to us so that we can start having conversations of how we can make that possible 
uh, in your area is by going to our website at progressiveag.org and click on the Get Involved button. Folks, we've been talking with Brian Cool, CEO of the Progressive Agriculture Foundation. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, Mike. Make every day a safety day. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and we'll be reflecting on the year and what's ahead, along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss. On the internet, there are tons of special networking websites, but one stands apart. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. Did you know in the U.S., 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant? If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, please visit MatchingDonors.com. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and our friend Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition has sent along an update. He has been eyeing river levels, not just here in the United States, but around the world. And as listeners are no doubt going to be, uh, won't be surprised to hear that drought that's been gripping the central part of the country for the past three months has impacted Mississippi River water levels and a drought across the Central Americas, particularly Panama, is impacting the levels of shipments that can move through the Panama Canal. Mike notes that as of right now, water levels in the Mississippi at uh, St. Louis and Memphis are comparable to where they are in 2022. Last year, the river was a little bit higher at this point in the year. And in 2021, it was a little bit lower. So we're right in the range for the Mississippi, though recent dryness has him concerned. Hopefully, from his perspective, these rainfall events that have developed recently over the Midwest can continue to add some additional depth to the Mississippi while dredging continues, particularly on the lower end of the Mississippi River. The Panama Canal, however, is experiencing some draft restrictions. Notably, Mike says that the larger, newer vessels, the vessels that can go through the newest locks built at the Panama Canal, they are currently seeing a six-foot draft restriction. Very few grain export ships are being impacted by that so far. However, because of the drought uh, that is ongoing there in central Panama, now we're starting to see restrictions hit conventional Panamax ships. According to Mike, those are the bulk of uh, dry grain shipments. They're currently seeing their depth reduced by about six inches, half a foot through the Panama Canal, which doesn't sound like very much. But when you're talking millions of bushels of grain, that half a foot can add up quickly. So Mike is watching. Uh, hopefully there is some rain in the forecast for central Brazil. If that moisture falls, uh, that 
that six-inch uh, draft restriction could be lifted. Though the drought that's in place over Panama has been there for several years, perhaps with this move from El into El Nino, they could see additional moisture, but that's unsure as of yet. You know, earlier in the program, we had the chance to check in with Dan Halstrom of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, and the remit of the U.S. MEF is for the promotion of U.S. red meat. So they look at beef, they look at poultry, and they look at lamb. Excuse me, they look at beef, pork, and lamb. Poultry, on the other hand, is handled elsewhere. But we did get some meat export news on the poultry front this morning out of South America. The country of Colombia, which uh, beginning on June 1st, uh, limited, in fact, stopped in imports of U.S. poultry on HPAI concerns, that highly pathogenic avian influenza. Now, this ban in Colombia only lasted from June 3rd through June 8th. It was a five-day ban in that country before uh, negotiators were able to get together and hammer out agreements around the safety of the poultry that was headed to Colombia. They did that very, very quickly. They were able to get things turned around, get that poultry back moving. However, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office says that ban that was in place for five days cost the U.S. poultry industry $1.1 million because Colombia has been the 10th largest market for U.S. poultry exports. The USDA's Foreign Ag Service, the USDA's Plant Health, uh, Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, and the U.S. Free Trade Agreement, or U.S. Free Trade, or the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, excuse me, they all got together to push Colombia to reopen their market, and that was successful. However, there are still ongoing concerns and questions about what to do with those losses and what to do with that poultry that was brought into the country during that five-day window that has just been sitting there since. They call it struck meat, and that is an issue down there in Colombia right now. Globally, however, food prices continue to drive headlines, but they're moving in the right direction for the world's consumers. The food price index in June fell to its lowest level in more than two years, and that's according to the UN Food Agency. It was pulled lower by a big drop in the cost of sugar, notably, vegetable oils, cereal, as we continue to see the price of wheat drop down, and dairy prices. We've talked to our friends in the dairy industry for the past year, certainly have seen uh, gross receipts for those products move lower as prices have come down for class three milk. The reading for May was given at 124.3. The reading for June was at 122.3. So continuing to come down, coming down substantially from April of 2021, and excuse me, March of 2022, when the index was 24% higher. So we are seeing some improvements in the cost of food. We're also seeing improvements in ethanol production here across the country. Supplies are there for summer production. We're seeing production rise hit a fresh six-month high this past week. And importantly, inventories are declining. So what that means is we are producing more ethanol at ethanol production facilities across the country, and we're having to put less into stockpile. Indications, perhaps, that drivers are getting out this summer, taking advantage of these cooler temps across much of the country to rack up some mileage. In the Midwest, which is the biggest ethanol-producing region, output rose to just shy of 1 million barrels per day, and that's up from 991,000 barrels per day the week earlier. Excited to see some progress coming there on the ethanol and biofuels demand front. One issue I wanted to give a quick update on because we've talked about it a time or two is the issue of forever chemicals. The U.S. government is ramping up its tests and its research into a chemical called PFAS, PFAS, 
And they're testing for this chemical in private and in public water supplies. PFAS has been used for decades as a fire retardant. It is a non-stick chemical. It's used really in a lot of different things throughout the years. But what we're finding is once it gets into water, it doesn't go away. And in states like Michigan, New Mexico, and in Maine, they have seen accumulations of PFAS in livestock that drink water that has this contamination. And in a few cases, we've seen animals cold because their PFAS contamination is too high. Well, for the first time, the U.S. government is really starting to dig into the impact of PFAS. And the U.S. Geological Survey published really the first nationwide survey of this chemical. And they found that this chemical is in 45% of the nation's tap water. I bring this up. I don't know what it means, but this is a chemical and a phrase that we are going to be hearing a lot more of in coming years. And I think it is definitely going to impact the ag industry. So keep your ears up for conversations around PFAS and its impact on water. Folks, tune in next week. AOA, we're going to be checking in with Alan Schaefer of the Diesel Technology Forum about some impressive changes that are coming in the diesel engine industry. We hope to see you then. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. This is Jesse Allen, Farmer Ranch Director for the American Ag Network. Listeners know they can depend on their favorite radio station for the latest news, weather, markets, community events, and more. In fact, AM radio is the backbone of America with 80 million people tuning in each month to listen. And in an emergency, radio is there to help keep you safe in dangerous situations. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com and tell us why, and you will have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and we'll be reflecting on the year and what's ahead, along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.